Psalms is one of 66 books in our Bible. The Bible is the revelation of who God is. Uh, It's been said worship is a rhythm of revelation and response. That means that we see God and we respond to God. Uh, We will not, we really cannot respond to something or someone we haven't seen or haven't experienced. And we cannot respond to the triune God clearly apart from his word. So the Bible is the revelation of who God is. If you ever wonder what God looks like, right? He said, no man has seen me at any time. But if you ever wonder who God really is, look to Jesus. Read the Gospels. John 1.14, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen, that's the revelation. We have seen something. His glory, glory as the, as the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. And Jesus said this in John 14.9, whoever has seen me, that's the revelation. Whoever has seen me has seen the father. So the Bible, specifically Jesus, is the revelation of who God is. But secondly, the Bible is also the revelation of what God has done. It's his acts. It's often called the story of God or the grand narrative of God or the meta narrative. And that's most specifically seen in the gospel, Matthew, Mark, Luke and John. So when we worship, we're remembering the mighty works of God, his faithfulness, his wisdom, his loyal love. And most importantly, his faithfulness in sending his son to die for our sins. This past Monday was Memorial Day, a day worth pausing and contemplating and remembering why we enjoy the freedoms that we do. And we enjoy the freedoms that we do at the high cost of human life. I mean, if you if you were at all tracking with any of uh, what was out there, either on social media or certain news outlets, uh, you would hear stories of 14 year old younger brothers who lied about their age to enlist and fight along their older brothers and 14-year-olds dying on the beaches of Normandy. We enjoy freedoms at the high cost of human life. And that is illustrative, though not an exact parallel, of what Jesus did for us. John 15:13 says this, Greater love has no one than this, that someone laid down his life for his friends. Or 1 John 3:16, By this we know love. That he, Jesus, laid down his life for us. That's a revelation of who God is and what God has done. So when we open our Bible to the Psalms, actually composed of five different books consisting of 150 Psalms or songs or praises, that's what the word actually means, you are opening up to God's inspired hymn book. Right? We've done summer through the summer and summer in the Psalms. For several summers now, um, jumping back into it in book two. And this is what the Psalms are intended to do. They're, they're, They're intended to be instructive about God, about humanity, and about life. When we read the Psalms, we're meant to understand things about God from an affection standpoint. And about human nature and about how this life is to be lived. Listen to listen to a sample of ten emotions that the Psalms allow us to feel. Psalm four, verse seven, you have put more joy in my heart than they have when their grain and wine abound or this in Psalm 18. I love you, O Lord, my strength. That's relationship. 
Or Psalm 25, I am lonely and afflicted. Have you ever felt that way? Or my life is spent with sorrow, Psalm 31. Or why? Or today's psalm, why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Or this one, this has been probably all of our experience at some point in our life. In Psalm 44, shame has covered my face. Or Psalm 51, wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Or Psalm 4.8, in peace I will both lie down and sleep. Or Psalm 47, clap your hands all people, shout to God with loud songs of joy. Or Psalm 62, for God alone, O my soul, wait in silence, for my hope is from Him. In the book Sing, Keith Getty says this, God designed our psyche for singing. When singing praise to God, so much more than just the vocal box is engaged, God has created our minds to judge pitch and lyric, to think through the concepts we sing, to engage the intellect, imagination, and memory, and to remember what is set to a tune. God has formed our hearts to be moved with depth of feeling and a whole range of emotion as the melody carried truths of who God is and whose we are sink in. Anyone in the back, you're welcome to sit down. I already explained to the folks in here that uh, we have a four-part sermon this morning, and the intro is the longest part, uh, so I don't want you to be standing back there waiting for a typical introduction. Why do human beings put words or express truth with music and poetry? Why do we make it singable? Because when we do that, it makes it memorable, Right? I mean, some of you haven't heard some of your childhood scripture songs you were taught in years. But you know what would follow this. Jesus. You know that. Right? You, you remembered it. Some of you, some of you from decades and you haven't sang that. Or the B-I. Right? You know that. That's the power of putting truth to music. Or one of my least favorites. Father... Oh, yeah. Like, what does that mean, even? Had many sons, and I am one of them. Woo! And we dance around, right? And it has, like, no theological context whatsoever, but we remember it, right? So the, the, the power is we can remember good or bad truth concepts. That's the power of music, and that's why we put words to music, because it aids memory. Going back, Psalm 1 and 2 are the inspired introduction to the Psalter. They're, the, they're, they're sort of the great gateway that you have to walk into to access the Old Testament hymn book. Psalm 1 sings of the choice between two ways, a choice each one of us has to make. And if you think by not making a choice, you, you don't have to go on either path. The fact is you've already chosen one of those paths. Psalm 2 sings of the cosmic confrontation that the choice in Psalm 1 reflects. Psalm 2 introduces us to God's Messiah King. It's really the words of Jesus in John 14, 6, where he says, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Psalm 2 says this, the nations rage against God. They're actually raging against the Lord and his anointed. And God laughs and he says this, I have placed my chosen king on the throne in Jerusalem 
on my holy mountain. And that king is identified as God's son in Psalm 2, verse 7 and 12. All the psalms have an object. So before we sing our first song this morning, we need to understand the object of worship. And that object is God and God's son, the Messiah King. Jesus affirmed this in Luke 24, 27, where, he, where it says, Beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures, that includes the Psalms, the things concerning himself. So Jesus, in some way, is the object of worship in the Psalms. A few verses later, it says this, Jesus said this, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. There are things in the Psalms that point directly to our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. It's interesting that in the first book of Psalms, Psalm 1 to 41, the name Yahweh is the focus. But as we shift now into the second book of Psalms, Psalm 42 to 72, the name is taken over by the title Elohim. Yahweh refers to God's self-existence. It's really rooted in Exodus 3.14, where God said to Moses, I am who I am. And the tense of that can be interpreted so many different ways. I was who I will be. I am who I was. I am who I will be. I will be who I was. I am who I am. That's Yahweh. Yahweh is near you and accessible and close and loving. The name Elohim refers to God as creator, living God, or mighty God. Elohim is the first mention of God in the Bible in Genesis 1-1 where it says, In the beginning, God, and then His incredible might and strength are shown when it says God created the heavens and the earth. This first song we're about to sing will we'll set the clarity of the object of our worship this morning, and it includes themes of Yahweh and Elohim and God's Messiah King. Please open your scriptures to Psalm 42. Psalm 42 is composed of two different laments or expressions of grief and sorrow. And he begins by speaking of thirst caused by exile. And the psalmist is comparing his thirst in a dry land to his spiritual thirst caused by displacement. So if this is David, and there's reasons to believe it is David, in exile, he is in a wilderness, a dry wilderness, he's experiencing thirst, and he's he's comparing that thirst to a young animal in the middle of drought. Look at verse 1 of Psalm 42. As a deer or a wilderness gazelle, as a deer pants for flowing streams. So picture the idea of 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 an animal suffering in drought. We've seen this in Africa, and the animals that need the water the most stand back from the remaining water holes because there are crocodiles in there. And so these gazelles find a little bit of shade under a sparse acacia tree, and you can see them panting for water. That's the comparison to the psalmist here whose soul is thirsty for God. Look at it. So pants my soul for you, O God. Verse 2. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. That's Elohim. When shall I come and appear before God? 
My tears have been my food day and night. While they say to me all the day long, where is your God? So this is not just dependence on God, though that is assumed in this first section. But the psalmist has lost something. Did you see what he's lost? He's lost the joy of being in God's presence. or He's lost the joy of being in Jerusalem where he can enter in to the religious festivities. He's spiritually dry. And it's, it's an interesting picture that the tears have become his food. He's probably crying so much that the tears are running into his mouth. Added to that pain is the taunt of his godless enemies who say to him all day long, where is your God? Seven times the name Elohim, mighty God, living God, is used in this section because it is only the mighty God that is going to be able to deliver someone out of exile and bring them back to nearness to him. You know, as we travel through life, we too can experience thirst caused by exile. Some dry seasons are longer than others. Yet no matter how dry or difficult the wilderness, believers will eventually pray from a soul thirst for Elohim to the mighty and living God. See, to be, to be in exile simply means to be thrust from someone's home either by choice or by pressure. And clearly the psalmist is away from his home. Look at verse 4. He's away from the house of God where a multitude keep festival. Thinking about this, sometimes we may find ourselves in relational exile, not able to return to that person for several or differing reasons, or spiritual exile by choices that we have made, or situational exile, the sense that we're distant or removed from better times, or away from a safe place, or away from a joyous context, or worse, away from God. How does the psalmist respond? First, Notice in verse 4, he remembers something. And that's going to be a motif throughout some of these psalms. And it's mentioned twice in this psalm in verse 4 and 6. Look at verse 4. These things I remember as I pour out my soul, how I would go with the throng and lead them in procession to the house of God with glad shouts and songs of praise, a multitude-keeping festival. So whatever you think about Israelite worship or Israelite religion, it's a lot more than the pictures of men, you know, with their heads covered, standing before a stone wall. It was joyous. It was a cause for rejoicing. It was a time of festivity and joyous shouts. He feels cut off and deserted by God and cut off from participating in temple worship. So what he does is he remembers back to better days. He remembers back to times of God's closeness. And himself leading great crowds of pilgrims going to Jerusalem to participate in the festivals of worship. So that's the first thing he does. He remembers back. Secondly, he speaks truth to his own soul. Look at verse 5. Do you ever talk to yourself? Because that's what he's about to do. This is, this is the internal dialogue that happens to everyone. He asks this question. Why are you cast down, O my soul? Why are you in turmoil within me? You know, sometimes we create our own exile. And sometimes it's forced upon us. But in both cases, the result is the same. It's turmoil of soul. 
The word turmoil is very interesting. It signifies troubled. It can also be translated murmuring or complaining. Have you ever had that where there's a, a constant internal dialogue of complaining? It can also mean clamorous or grieving. I love this one. Growling. Have you ever had a growling heart? A growling heart that would not stop an internal dialogue? It growls. It's unrestful. If the psalmist is God is Elohim, the living and mighty God, his soul must be reassured of this truth. So look at the second part of verse 5. He says this. So he says, Saul, why are you this way? Why are you disquieted? Why are you growling? And he gives instruction to his own soul. And this is very instructive. He says, hope in God. Hope in Elohim. For I shall again praise him. My salvation and my God. That's the answer. Hope. Not I hope it happens. That's not the biblical word for hope. The biblical word for hope is a confident expectation. So when our heart is complaining and growling and, and, and in discord with inside of us, you tell it, you grab a hold of it, and you say, hope in God. He is our salvation and He is our mighty one. Three times in Psalm 42 and 43, we're going to see this. The psalmist asks three times. It's the refrain. It's actually what we might call the chorus. Why are you cast down, O my soul? Three times he asks, Soul, why are you in turmoil within me? And three times he instructs his soul, Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my Elohim. I'll ask the music team to get in place. So the psalmist moves from thirst and exile to what we'll call in this section turbulence of soul. And he begins the second lament by repeating the refrain that was just sung in the first section. Look at verse 6. My soul is cast down within me. And that happened even after he instructed himself. Even after he took a hold of his soul and he said, hope in God. Even after remembering better days and speaking truth, the depression persists. So now, instead of remembering past and better days, he, he turns his remembrance to God. Five times in this section, the name Elohim is used. Look at verse 6. My soul is cast down within me. Therefore, I remember, notice the change here, I remember you. This is the second time he's using the faculty of memory to adjust his soul's condition. And now he's going to launch into some geographical references that are unclear. There's several different interpretations for them. But he says, from the land of Jordan and of Hermon, from Mount Mizar. Maybe that's where he's in exile, far north of Israel. Or maybe these are places where he actually remembers and experiencing God's closeness. In either way, he's remembering God through those places. He's far from Jerusalem. But in his attempt to delight in God or remember God with these geographical places, it's interesting because you can actually see his mind shift. I'm going to remember you. I'm going to try to be hopeful. But look what he says in verse 7. Because as he thinks of the great mountain range and the river of Jordan, it's only the ravines and the crashing waterfalls that overwhelm his soul. In verse 7 he says, Deep calls to deep at the roar of your waterfalls. 
All your breakers and your waves have gone over me. Have you ever felt that way? You try to hope in God. You try to remember these past places. And even what you set your mind on turns dark when originally it was intended to encourage. Matter of fact, the motif of water that he used in verse 1 to quench thirst now becomes something that overwhelms him. It seems as though as the psalm moves on, his depression is getting worse. He reverses it to the pictures of breaking his soul and the flooding of his heart. Yet he knows God is working in the troubles. And, and I want to encourage us with this. this. Sometimes we'll read right over this. God is working in my troubles and God is working in your troubles. Look at verse 7. Because this is, this is what he knows. God is working within the troubles for they are God's waterfalls, God's breakers, and God's waves. Verse 7. Your waterfalls and your breakers and your waves have gone over me. Yes, the deeps can become very deep, but God is still at work in them. Let me give you some examples from the Old Testament. Some of the biggest Bible greats that we, that we place up on a pedestal had moments where it got so deep that they wished death upon themselves. For example, after Moses risked his life to free the Israelites from Egypt, they all began grumbling and whining against him for something as silly as meat. Do you know complaining can have a very deep effect upon a leader's heart? It bothered Moses so badly that he said to God in Numbers eleven thirteen to 15, where can I get meat for all these people? He's asking God this. They keep wailing to me. Give us meat to eat. Moses said, I cannot carry all these people by myself. The burden is too heavy for me. If this is how you intend to treat me, God, just go ahead and kill me. Do me a favor and spare me this misery. Moses' problem was frustration and exhaustion. In the book of Job, we see that after Job is stripped of his health, family, and wealth, he laments and curses the day of his birth. In Job 3, 11 to 13, he also, talking to God, says this, Why did I not die at birth? Why did I not come out from the womb and expire? Why did the knees receive me, or why the breasts that I should nurse? For then I would have laid down and been quiet. Job's problem was emotional and physical suffering. And Elijah, after embarking on a mission of God where he was extremely successful, finds himself so depressed that he utters these words in 1 Kings 19, verses 1 to 4. Now Ahab told Jezebel everything Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. Okay, so you're seeing your fellow people be murdered, be slaughtered. So Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah to say, quote, May the gods deal with me, be it ever so severely, if by this time tomorrow I do not make your life like that of one of them. Elijah, within 24 hours, I'm coming to hunt you down, kill you, and I have the best assassins on the planet. Elijah, I mean, what do you think of Elijah? Burly, strong, commander. Elijah was afraid and ran for his life. When he came to Beersheba in Judah, he left his servant there while he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness. Why? He came to a broom bush, sat down under it and prayed that he might die. I have had enough, Lord, he said. Take my life. I am no better than my ancestors. What was Elijah's problem? Fear 
and weariness. Do you know exhausted people, do you know exhausted godly people can easily move into dangerous places and into depression and into requests of asking God to end their life? Even Jonah, really the first missionary from from Israel, is sent to the Ninevites. And even after being swallowed by that great fish, you thought he would have had a heart turn. He has no heart turn, but he, he turns his direction. He goes and he preaches. In Hebrew, it's a five-word sermon to a congregation that he hates. And he sees the largest revival in history happen underneath his preaching, and he hates it. He became so frustrated that the city of Nineveh repented and received God's grace that we read this in in Jonah chapter four. Jonah had gone out and sat down at a place east of the city. Why did he go out there? He was waiting for God to destroy his enemies. There he made himself a shelter, sat in its shade and waited to see what would happen to the city. Then the Lord God provided a leafy plant and made it grow up over Jonah to give shade for his head to ease his discomfort. And Jonah was very happy about the plant. But at dawn the next day, God provided a worm. See, God both provides shade and the sun to beat down upon our heads. The next day, God provided a worm which chewed the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God provided a scorching east wind. Three things he's provided now. And the sun blazed on Jonah's head so that he grew faint. He wanted to die and said, it would be better for me to die than to live. This is from a Hebrew prophet who had already guided pagan sailors to throw him into the ocean, which Jonah thought was a sure death toss. Jonah's problem as a Hebrew missionary was indifference towards others, anger and resentment. So many different ways that we can get into trouble. In Psalm 42, the psalmist actually alternates between trusting God and doubting God. I want you to see this between trusting God. Look at verse eight. By day, the Lord commands his steadfast love. And at night, his song is with me, a prayer to the God of my life. Let me ask you, is that true? The answer is yes. So you have the psalmist saying that. But even while we're proclaiming truth, there can be a deep fighting and struggle in our heart. So he alternates between trust and doubting by questioning God's dealings with him. Look at verse nine. This is immediately following propositional truth, theological truth. I say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? By the way, that's what his enemies were saying. Where is your God? It's finally gotten into his mind and now he's actually crying out to God. Why have you forgotten me? And he says this, why do I go mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? As with a deadly wound in my bones, my my adversaries taunt me while they say to me all the day long, where is your God? And for the psalmist, you know what's happening? He's actually starting to believe the enemy's taunt. He's actually starting to say, yeah, where is God? God, where are you? Have you forgotten me? Tim Keller said this. When we are discouraged, we listen to the fearful speculations of our hearts. He says here instead, we see the psalmist not merely listening to his troubled heart, but addressing it, taking his soul in hand, saying, remember this, O soul. And that's exactly what he does a second time. Look at verse 11, basically the chorus of this song. Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. Trust God. 
Wait for God. Speak truth to your soul. Take your soul into your hand and say, look to God and remember him. Or as Colossians said, set your affections on things above where Christ sits at the right hand of God. Three times the psalmist asks, why are you cast down on my soul? Three times he asks, oh soul, why are you in turmoil within me? And three times he takes his soul in his hand and he says what? What does he say? Hope in God. For I shall again praise Him, my salvation and my God, my Savior, Elohim. Okay, Psalm 43 for our final section this morning. Really, Psalm 42 and 43 go together. In tomorrow's week at a glance, I'll give you four reasons why the Psalms compose actually a single song uh, together. So what you have in Psalm 43 is the laments of the two preceding sections of the Psalm are now converted into a prayer. Basically, the inner chatter or the inner dialogue is transformed into an outer plea to Elohim. The psalmist had been dwelling on past days with an internal dialogue. For practical purposes, he's talking to himself. Uh, But that internal chatter still must be guided by truth. That internal dialogue has to, at some point, come out and express itself to God. In this section... Seven times the name Elohim is used. Again, throughout this entire song that is being sung, it is all about the mighty living God who must deliver us from whatever exile and separation we are in and bring us back to nearness to Him. As James says, draw near to God and He will what? He will draw near to you. Look at verse 1. First, the psalmist turns in prayer to the enemies. Even vindicate me, O God. You have these legal terms. And defend my cause against an ungodly people. These may not be Gentile enemies. It may actually be a rebellion from within Israel. From the deceitful and unjust man, singular, and there are episodes in David's life where you can actually put a name on this, but since it's being sung, we're going to keep it generic. From the deceitful and unjust man, deliver me. For you are the God in whom I take refuge. Why have you rejected me? Can you feel the angst still? The struggle? Have you forgotten me? Why have you rejected me? Why do I go about mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? Basically, what he's asking for is simply deliverance and rescue from his depressed condition. A depressed condition that is being exacerbated by the enemies and by a specific individual. And here's another why question. Why God these circumstances? So the psalmist invites God in prayer to be his judge and act on his behalf. Second, he not only takes up the matter of his enemies, he asks for deliverance, but second, he prays for direction. This is also very instructive for a darkened, depressed soul. Verse 3, send out your light and your truth. Let them lead me. Let them bring me to your holy hill and to your dwelling. He's desiring to go back to Jerusalem and he needs to be led there by God personally. Verse 4, then I will go to the altar of God, to God my exceeding joy, and I will praise you with a lyre. That's a stringed instrument, like a a small U-shaped harp with strings fixed to a crossbar. And then I will praise you, O God. Note the personal 
title here, O God, My God. Notice the intensity of his cry and the personal nature of it. Let me ask you a question this morning. Have you lost your way? Are you in exile? Even though unlike the psalmist, you're at your familiar place of worship, enjoying praise and joy and the festivities of our culture. But it's still possible that your heart is far away in exile, even though your body is in a religious place. If you've lost your way, do what the psalmist does. Pray for light and truth to guide you not back to a geographical place or a style of worship, but back to God himself. How do we get there? Psalm 119, 105. Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. Okay, that's going to become personalized in John chapter 1. In the beginning was the word capitalized. It's referring to someone And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And He was in the beginning with God. So this Word is Elohim. He's also Yahweh. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him, in the Word, was life. And the life was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness will not overcome it. In John 8, 12, Jesus Himself says this. He spoke to them, saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Following Jesus and following the light are synonymous. It's interesting that after Thomas had doubted Jesus' resurrection, probably felt exiled from the other disciples who had seen a witness of his his resurrection, he says this, the Scripture says this in John 20, eight days later, His disciples were inside again and Thomas was with him. Remember, so it's at least eight days where all the other disciples are talking about an eyewitness account of Jesus being risen from the dead. And Thomas, in a sense, is exiled off to the side. Of course, he had said, unless I see the nail prints in his hand and touch the side where the spear went in. It's a very strong statement. I will never believe. Thomas isn't even going to believe the eyewitness account of his own disciple friends, his own team. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, See, Jesus already knew he was, in, he was locked in doubt. Put your finger here and see my hands. and Put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Of course, Thomas refused. He didn't need that proof anymore. He saw his Savior. And I want you to hear his confession. It's very much like the psalmist in Psalm 42 and 43. Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. Personal, intense, close. Revelation 21, we're looking forward now. It says this, And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it. For the glory of God gives it light And its lamp, listen to this, is the Lamb. Revelation 22, verse 5, And night will be no more. They will need no light or lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. Look at Psalm 43, verse 3. This is his prayer. Send out your light and your truth. Let them lead me. Let them bring me to your holy hill and to your dwelling. Then I will go to the altar of God, to God my exceeding joy, and I will praise you, O God, my God. Now for the third time, 
in the two Psalms, he says this. Why are you cast down on my soul? Soul, why are you in turmoil within me? And it's almost this is the conclusion of this single song. He says to himself, hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. Why the disquiet in your heart this morning? There could be a hundred answers to that question. You know, it's upon you to take your soul in your hand and say, hope in God, in the presence of his salvation. I love how the psalmist describes God. Look back at Psalm 42, verse 9. I say to God, my rock. It's almost as if he saw the rapids coming down and rushing through the chasm. He saw this high, dry, safe rock in the middle of the waters. I say to God, my rock. And look at Psalm 43, verse 2. It says this, for you are the God in whom I take refuge. A beautiful verse out of Deuteronomy 32, verses 3 and 4. For I will proclaim the name of the Lord, ascribe greatness to our God, God the rock. His work is perfect. Even in the midst of your troubles, He is the rock whose way is perfect and all His ways are justice. So even the hurt or the criminal activity against you or any kind of abuse, this God, the rock, His way is perfect and all His ways, remember this, are justice, a God of faithfulness and without iniquity, just and upright is he. Our last text this morning, at the end of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, he combines the two paths of Psalm 1 together with some of the themes of Psalm 42 and 43. And Jesus says this, everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock and the rain fell. And the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against that house. And it fell and great was the fall of it.